All right, today I have Sean Galloway. Sean, uh, you were on uh, episode episode three, and it, it felt like a really long time ago, and it has. I'm up to episode 42 now, so everything's really been going good. And I, I did a great job of copying and stealing exactly what you were doing with those little short episodes, of course, too. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's really, really, really helped me out, and it helps out me to, to get better at speaking and listening and all that kind of stuff, too, then. so. But in today's episode, I think what I want to talk about is when somebody has a really good system in place and maybe they slack off uh they get uh divided energies and they kind of get complacent you know how do you how do you how do you kind of get back on track once that you had a really good system and then you got complacent and now um management thinks that you're doing great still and now you have to kind of go back to them and say well we're kind of slipping back in the old habits and so um, let's just uh, go and uh, kick around a couple of strategies that you've seen, of course, in your days out there. Absolutely, David. So I guess what we're talking about here is sustainable performance or a highly reliable organization. How yes. do we just continue to perform over and over again? So I yes, guess to answer yes. that question, I would look at it from, let's call it organizational complacency versus individual complacency. Oh, yes, yes, so, yes, it is. Right, so when I look at how do we create an HRO, how do we create sustainable performance, I find you have to have five different capacities in place. One is the system capacity. So do we have the right types of preventative systems in place? And I would even look at that and say, I have several clients, they measure their, corrective actions against the hierarchy of controls. That's one of the ways to oh, make sure we good. feel confident against our system capacity because we had a deviation it resulted in an injury incident. What are we doing to fix it? If it's more paperwork and PPE on people, then we're not strengthening the system capacity. We're creating more opportunity for human error. So a lot of this is, I guess, let me pause and say, this goes back to how we've defined success. And I say, you have to be great at four things to truly be continuously successful. One is the ability to get and repeat great results. And I have several organizations, they no longer even communicate the incident rate anymore. Of course, they respond to events, but they get to the point where they realize that we care more about the numbers than we do about the people. And that leads, that okay. leads a lot of things. I found there's three ways to have zero injuries in an organization. Number one, don't report them. That's, that's one way, unethical and illegal in a lot of areas. Number two is to be awfully lucky all the time. And number three is to be intentional moment by moment, minute by minute on what we're actually doing. And that th third part's the hardest part. So luck tends to come into way. So, but if we have continued performance, here's the next piece. We need to know why, why do we have great results? And this can lead to the organizational complacency. Nothing bad is happening. So we must be good. So we need to work to understand and investigate our successes. Why are we successful project by project, day by day? The third part is the system capacity that I started to talk about, which I'll come back to. And the fourth is we're maintaining a mindset and this helps prevent the complacency that regardless how well we're doing, we could always be better. Uh, I have clients that discontinue using the term best practice in lieu of the term better practice because their fear is if we adopt a best practice, we might stop looking for a better way. And there's always going to be a better way to do things. So oh, back to the good. system. Yeah, it's just, it's terminology, but language mm -hmm. shapes our culture. Right, right, so right. when I look back at the system capacity, do we have confidence then 
And I'm gonna come back to those five capacities I started with. Uh, but do we have confidence that our system capacity can both prevent unwanted outcomes, but do we have recovery capacity that kicks in when mistakes are made? And in mature, highly reliable organizations where they embrace those types of failures, they understand that people are fallible. We, we make mistakes. So that's why from a system standpoint, we have light curtains. We have additional controls that kick into place that if somebody makes a mistake, the machinery shuts itself off for example, or an aircraft secondary hydraulic systems. So, or, or even eyewash stations or even EpiPens, right? So if something bad happens, there are other things that could minimize the severity or bring the person in the environment back to that, that pre-incident state. So do we have system capacity? Then knowing that we've got people, knowing that they're working within systems, the next capacity you have to have is leadership capacity. And I had a call today where, in an interview with an organization I'm working with, a key person told me a story about how they walked by and an employee was underneath the suspended load and oh. went to the production meeting and then went back and, and did talk to the employee about it and to try to understand why. And the person tended to rationalize it. And I asked, well, did you stop the work? And that's when he had his own defining moment that, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't stop the work and admitted because I didn't want to ruin the relationship and several other reasons, but that shows me it's one individual, of course, and I'm working to assess the culture of this organization. So I'm about to find out, do they lack the leadership capacity? And that's, that's not having just the authority. It's not just acting on opportunities to stop work. It's having the willingness to do so. And that's competence and confidence. And then it, that's also, you know, do I just think it's not going to be bad so I don't see anything? So you have the leadership capacity, and I define that two ways. That's aligning the people to the systems, but also embracing deviations from expectations that don't turn out bad and really investigate and understand what systems are is leading to that deviation. And then the the next one is cultural capacity. And that's that same leader told me that there were other employees nearby that saw that employee underneath the load and was working for quite a while underneath it. So that tells me, might they lack the cultural capacity? And that's peer-to-peer, -peer, what people say to each other when the boss isn't around. So do you have cultural capacity? Then the next is engagement capacity. And that means we realize there's four steps to engagement, buy-in, willing participation, ownership, and shared ownership. Are we creating the capacity to engage the workforce, not just tell them do this, but we involve them in the why, we involve them in the creation, et cetera. Uh, then the, what we have to have is our strategic capacity. And that's making sure that we have the right strategy around this, that we have good indicators that tell us, hey, we're great. Ooh, but our tenure rate is really dropping off. We've got a lot of new employees in here. And we have a lot in our systems that rely on people not making mistakes with paperwork and PPE. So, ooh, maybe something might be coming. So I'll talk about the individual capacity, you know, or the individual complacency things later, but how did that sit with you and from an organization? Oh, capacity? Um, it, it was, it was really, really good. And I think that you really hit on a key aspect when you were talking about how that people, people leave and new people come on board, you know, it's really hard when you're brand new to, to embrace that culture. Uh, you also have some, uh, I'll just call them old timers who are just like, everything's awesome and it's great. I just have to ride out next couple of years 
and I'm good. So they may not be as engaged as they can be too. Um, have you ever had a uh, opportunity to um, maybe sit down with leadership and supervisors and really train people on having those difficult talks and conversations? Because many times it's the supervisor who feels difficult. I shouldn't say difficult, who, who feels very uncomfortable about having this conversation. And thus it, it doesn't happen because it's really them who feels uncomfortable. Yes, absolutely. To answer your question, I have, uh, we do a lot of that. I, uh, my most recent book that was published already in January this year is called Coach, A Safety Leadership Fable. And a large part of that is, is how to give feedback. Uh, so yes, without question. Now, when we look at the experience versus the new, I would call that that we don't know what we don't know if we're experienced or if we're not, if we're new and maybe what we know just ain't so mm -hmm. if, we're, if we're experienced there. So the, the other challenge that you, that you have, it, well, first off, people do things for a reason. So if you see a behavior that's of concern, you don't want to just give feedback about the behavior. You have to try to understand the why from that behavior. And I love, it's called theory of mind. You, you may be very familiar with this, mm -hmm. but you know, we tend to infer intention on other people. And, and I love how Stephen Covey put it. We judge others by their actions, yet we judge ourselves by our intent. So we have a theory of the intent of that individual, the theory of mind. And we just automatically assume they've become complacent. Well, there's a lot of things that lead to that. If you're experienced and that task you're performing presents a low probability risk, well, low probability risks fly under the radar of common sense and experience, which are the two most commonly used tools an old hand, an older hand, a more experienced person uses. And common sense is sense about things that are common. It doesn't mean everyone has it. Uh, we, we would know walking on the edge of a couch blindfolded is really stupid. You could fall. But a, a new toddler that crawls on the edge of the couch will fall <laughs> off because they haven't had that experience yet. So right, right. <laughs> it comes from experience. And if people don't have the experience, they can't call it common sense. Right, but right, if it's right. a low probability, those are things you could be doing all the time. And then, and then the reticular activating system kicks in and tends to push those things out because you've done it so many times, it's not risky. So we don't even see it anymore. On the other side, you train the reticular activating system to be much more aware of the stimuli you come in. You know that's risky until you've done it so many times and it flies under that radar. But yes to answering the question of we do a lot of work helping organizations know how to give feedback. But what we teach there's four parts. Familiarize, you got to know your people. And I'll come back to that one because I've got a good example. Mm -hmm. Then it's focus. You got to know what you're coaching for. Feedback how to have those conversations also if they're doing everything right and then facilitate how do I address the reason for the performance, not just the performance itself, but in mm -hmm. knowing your people and David, I see you doing something that's going on. I'm not going to just give you the feedback and hope you'll change your behavior. I want to know maybe something's going on with you. I had, I'll give you two examples. There was a supervisor of a line crew. So power delivery, energy delivery, line crews, told me a story this summer when actually we were teaching coaching to the whole all people leaders in the organization and he said about 20 years ago he was going through a pretty nasty divorce and his boss knew it and his boss made the decision to pull him out of the bucket bucket working on mm -hmm. the line pull him out of the bucket for three weeks and he said during that time i'm gonna use his words i was pissed but i know now that he saved my life because i shouldn't have been doing that task 
when my mind wasn't in the game. And another example was an organization that admitted they, they almost approached things the wrong way. This is before they were looking at reasons, culpability models. There was more blame, shame, retrain type of leadership style, but they had a gentleman. This was, gosh, 15 or so years ago. They had a gentleman that skipped a step in a lockout, tagout procedure, and they identified it and were about to go down the path of discipline until in the conversations they discovered it was either the previous day or shortly before that the gentleman lost his son in Iraq in combat and didn't tell anyone obviously cognitively was just not in mentally not in the right state understandably but that's what led to that drift from the procedure and uh, you know we classify a lot of this as complacency and everything but it's there's always reasons for it. And is it organizational reasons? How does that affect the individual? Individual things that might be going on with somebody. So yes to giving feedback, but the next step is so important and that's understanding why the behavior is taking place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm doing a better job of uh, giving that feedback now, but uh, I'm sure that when I was young, I, I probably did not give adequate adequate feedback because to me it was just well it's common sense you just don't you just don't do that stuff and it, it it took a number of years to really say well you know there's always a reason why somebody does that and for the most part it's because nothing bad ever happened there was also um, a reason why when somebody says but I'm working on peace peace work I got to get this done faster and if I get it done faster I get more money you know so there's 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 always that reason why. And now I'm I'm um, uh, smart enough or, or just old enough now, you know, to to ask ask why. So uh, yeah, that, that's a very a very big part of why why somebody does something, you know. And sometimes they literally don't know because, like you said, their mind is not in the game. They're just not focused. They're thinking about personal problems and other things. And at some point, they realize themselves before something happens, like oh, I skipped a whole step. So. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I too, you know, growing up, I, I remember when I was a, a supervisor for the first time at Fleur Daniel, which is where I worked my beginning of my corporate career after the military, I had a great mentor and the mentor gave me some some good feedback. I, I'm sure he said it to me much more politely than what I remember. <laughs> but what I, what I remember is, Sean, you suck at feedback, and <laughs> particularly around positive reinforcement. So he gave me, this was close to 30 years ago, he gave me a little uh, a little thing to do, which I've since heard others do it. So he must've picked it up somewhere. He said, Sean, what I want you to do is put six pennies in your left pocket every day. And your job throughout the day is to move one penny to your right pocket one at a time, but you can only do that when you give sincere positive feedback to someone. And the story I tell is there are a lot of days that I went home with six pennies in my left pocket, mm. not because the crews weren't doing the right thing, because it's hard to get in the habit of doing it and then doing it right. Uh, but yeah, with, it, we're also hardwired to manage by exception. So we tend to look for the things that are out of place and just address that without saying anything for all the positive stuff. So the, there's a lot of people that talk about the importance of positive reinforcement, but one I'd like to add to that, that I know you're familiar with. If you go back to the basics of the antecedents, behaviors, and consequence models, and then you look at what gives weight to consequences, the timing and the probability, you know, unfortunately, human nature is there are a lot more positive, immediate, and certain consequences that encourage taking shortcuts. There's mm -hmm. a lot, 
you know, the negative consequences are much more future and much more uncertain. So there's already a lot of things encouraging and influencing somebody to take a shortcut. Because if they, if it turns out bad, it's not going to happen immediately. It's not going to happen every single time, unless it's so severe what they're doing. So that's where I work with leaders and remind them we have to offset that. That's why we have to give feedback, especially (laughs) for what you want, because there's a tremendous amount of energy in the universe that's encouraging what we don't want. And that's shortcuts. Right, right, right. And that feedback has to be as soon as you possibly can give it to. It can't be, hey, I saw I saw something wrong, but I'm busy now. So stop by my office next Friday and we'll sit down and talk about it. It has to be right then and there. You know. And I think that makes it hard too for some people because they, they, they feel as if they're so rushed. They can really only talk about the negative and not about the positive, of course, too, at the same time. Yeah. And that's what was unfortunate about this story that I heard earlier today in, in an interview that I was conducting, that the individual saw that went on to the production meeting and then circle back around afterwards. So the immediacy of, my God, something bad could have really happened during that time and waited to give feedback. But yeah, I'd, remember that project you worked on 17 months ago? Wow, you really did a great job on that. Right, right. That's right. Exactly. And, and that's why, and that's why from a you know motivator standpoint, you know, money, a lot of things we do to recognize people are not very effective because we don't tie it to what happened to make that a reality. And that brings the problems of rewarding results that if we don't tie precisely what performance led to that result, we're resulting the, we're rewarding the outcome. And if I took a lot of risks along the way and we reward that outcome, then you're rewarding that. And anytime we reward a result by default, we're reinforcing the performance that led to that result. Oh yeah. So when you give feedback, it's not just a matter of, Hey, great job on that. It's when you took the time to tell those stories, the way that you did, I know it took you a little bit longer, but it made the message you wanted our supervisor to hear much more meaningful. So thank you for sharing those stories. That's a reinforcer. Hey, those stories are actually working. We ought to use those more. <laughs> right, 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 right. And uh, oh, so now that we've kind of deviated a little bit towards telling stories, you know, I've just recently kind of stumbled, stumbled, stumbled upon this whole thing, you know, and I had had heard for the last last couple of years, it, it's uh, a very good way of kind of getting your point across and building um building up with the person and all that stuff then and it's just recently where i've really kind of uh, embraced that whole model you know uh but now i worry that i'm running out of good stories you know because you know at some point you can only tell the same stories and then eventually you, you just don't have any new stories to talk about of course you know um i i, well, I would i would disagree with that because if you're if you're consciously aware of what's happening you on you so back to complacency <laughs> consciously <laughs> aware uh, if, if you if you if you're on guard and looking out for how what am I learning from this that I can tell others I find there's stories that happen all the time now there's something that works in my favor to prompt me to continuously be on the lookout and that's the weekly blog that we have and so in those blogs, 90% of them are stories about what happened versus just data points on things. And we have a saying in our company that people remember stories and pictures, not facts and figures. So I find that if you're paying attention to what you're doing and that outcome that you have, okay, so 
what was that story? The other thing that I do is, is I keep a log of some of the really important stories that I know that have worked really well, oh. adding to that as well. And wh- when I give keynotes, of course, I prepare whatever the materials in are, but I also want to match the mood, the tone, the theme, whatever, what's going on in that audience. So it's relatable. People can connect to it. So I never know what my opening and closing stories are going to be. I have a, a catalog, if you will, but I, I would encourage maybe maybe start holding yourself accountable to writing more. And when you do that, like a frequent blog, you have to be looking for stories and then you realize, wow, they're all around us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that. I had thought about my own stories and not I could I could steal them from others or the ones I read about from others and all that stuff. And very, very, very good point. Very good point. Huh. Yes, yes. Uh, so a little bit more about the uh, complacency. Um, so um, our friend just recently, a couple a couple of weeks back, was telling me how they had a really really good system in place, and then they got a lot of additional duty. So they tried to automate everything, and they gave the uh, eyewash to the facilities department, and they gave all these different tasks around and all that. And then when they finally went back and followed up, they found it really wasn't being done. Because just like everything, they hadn't thought about how busy people already were. They they were just focused on getting that stuff off of their plate. And if you don't have that good that good um, that good buy-in, everybody just sees it as something else that I have to do. Then you know, so so that makes it that makes it really hard when when you think you have a system set up, you're depending on others. And then, of course, when you finally go back and audit your own system, you find out it really is not that good. Yeah, George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, said the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it's taken place. (laughs) I I told them it's their responsibility. (laughs) Why isn't they don't know? Okay, so I, I would answer. I have a model that I use. It's called the five reasons for undesirable performance. So let's call this they're not taking they're not engaged. They're not owning these responsibilities. Well, there are five reasons I find, and there's a bell curve of distribution, obviously. Number one, some people are unwilling. They're just, that they may have said, yeah, sure, David, I'll take care of it, but they're really not willing. To, so that's going to work against it. Number two, they're unaware. So they may be unaware of what it's going to take to actually make that a reality. Uh, or maybe we tend to do a much better job aligning other humans to our results expectations than we do our behavioral expectations. So they may be aware of what the result is, but not what it's going to take to make that result a reality. So on a, right. number three, they're unable. So they may not have the technical acumen. They may not have the leadership acumen. They may not have the acumen to do what we need them to or the competencies. The next is they're unaccountable. And I use the term proactive accountability because it better defines what accountability is. Because in a lot of companies, it's, we didn't get the results we wanted, banging fist on table. Real accountability, and this goes to the point of making sure they're doing it. Real accountability is making sure people are doing the things necessary to get the results before checking how did it all turn out. So there's a result side to accountability and there's a positive feedback and expressing concern feedback on, on both of that. And then the last is, it's just completely unlike the culture. So you've swooped in, squawked a lot, dumped on them, and then left, and the culture is just not something that they view as a priority or important. But if, if we're asking other people to do this, we need to evolve as safety professionals. And the evolution that 
we refer to it. And this is more evolution of how the safety professional should be perceived than who they need to be, because all three are, are wildly important. We need grunts. That's what we call them. That's the administrative, the busy work, the filling out the logs, all of that type of stuff. The next level of how the professional is perceived is the guardian. And that's where they're helping others take ownership of the programs, getting it off their plate and onto their plate, but realizing offsetting isn't going to make it happen. We need to be monitoring. We need to be giving feedback if they're not. We need to be working. How do we build up their confidence and competence to take on to that. And then the final step in evolution of how we should be perceived is the guru. That's the strategic trusted advisor. Like general counsel doesn't run the operations, but they're there to make sure the right decisions are being made and the wrong decisions aren't. So right. we need to right. do that. But if we're, if we're offsetting for responsibility, this goes to, are we really clear uh, when you look at what leads people to resist taking on that responsibility, number one, they don't understand it. So we haven't effectively communicated the why. Stories can be helpful here. We haven't communicated the why. Number two, they don't like it. Or number three, they don't like the person bringing it. And that has to do with trust. We haven't established trust with that individual. But going into the buy-in piece, I don't believe we can ask a leader or an employee to buy into something until we've given them the opportunity to weigh in on that something. Because there's a huge difference when it comes to supporting, taking ownership and acting on a request when somebody, there's a huge difference when somebody thinks, I don't like it and I don't get it versus if they think I don't like it, but I get it. At least we have grudging compliance, mm -hmm. but we're not creating resistance to change if we're helping them understand the why, making sure they have the capabilities. And some of that may be taking something off of their plate to be able to take it on. And that goes to that coach book that I wrote, that that supervisor who we want often to take some responsibility of some of these things, they're the most undertrained, under-resourced, and underutilized person in any environment most of the time. Yet we put so much responsibility on them more and more and more. We're not taking anything mm -hmm. off their plate. So the most effective role of having ownership, giving feedback being present on the floor or in the field, how can they when you didn't take something off your plate as the only one, HR did, quality did, DE&I did, all of these other things are being put on people and we're not taking anything off. So mm -hmm. it's no wonder they're not taking acceptance. Of right, right. <laughs> right. <on. laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Exactly. So, Sean, it looks like we're uh, just just about just about bumping 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 up to the end of the uh, episode here. Um, let's spend just a couple of a couple seconds. So, what I have just for uh, me to take notes, um, I need to go back and work on my coaching. I need to go back and uh, come up with a list of stories, and I really like that proactive uh, accountability. I really really like that word. I'm going to see if I can do everything I can to steal it. And I'll probably give you a little bit of credit when I think about it, of course, you know, at the same time. But let's sit down and talk about you talked about how that you have a blog that's out there. And how can people go out and uh, connect with you? I'm on all the platforms. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm on I'm on all of those main ones. You can find me there. I hope <laughs> you can subscribe on our website. 
Uh, you, can, you can find me on Amazon as well. Uh, my seventh book will come out in May of 23. So next month in a, in a few weeks called The Bridge to Excellence, Building Capacity mm-hmm. for Sustainable Performance. Mm-hmm. So you can you can find me anywhere. And I certainly welcome anyone to connect and mm-hmm. let's have some conversations, see how we can shape performance. That is great, John. You have almost seven books. That is awesome, bud. Very good. Thank you very much. Very good. So, okay, let's go ahead there and uh, call it. We'll call it quits then. And uh, um, I want to, uh, if you could just stick around for uh, a couple seconds after, let's kind of uh, kick around some alternate dates and come up with another episode for you. So That's episode number 42, Sean Galloway. Everybody have a safe day.